if there's one tidbit of information I could encourage with parents, it's just to really don't shy away from that communication piece with a person who you're bringing your child to see, whether it's a therapist or your assessor, have that open communication. If you're not happy with something or you have a question about something, don't feel like you have to defer to the professional. Be honest and be open to having the process be collaborative so that you can be the good self-advocate for your child that you are and were meant to be. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. And I know that the neuropsych assessment process can be incredibly daunting and complicated to navigate, especially in recent years as a result of COVID. So I'm excited to share this conversation with pediatric and adolescent young adult neuropsychologist, Dr. Jonine Nazar Beesman. As you'll hear, Jonine's work is about taking into consideration the whole child and looking at the big picture when assessments are being done. In this episode, we talk about what parents should think about when vetting psychologists to assess their child, the difference between a neuropsych, a psychoeducational, and a psychological assessment, and how parents can navigate getting a better assessment if they believe their child got the wrong diagnosis. We also talked about what to do with all of that feedback that we get from a neuropsych evaluation and how that feedback can best be relayed to our kids and to their schools. And let me tell you a little bit more about Jonine before we get started. Dr. Nazar Beesman has over 25 years of experience specializing in assessing and treating children, adolescents, and young adults with neurodevelopmental disorders. She works closely with families, treatment teams, schools, and the community to ameliorate social, emotional, behavioral, and educational challenges. Jonine also specializes in forensic neuropsychology to assess damages due to traumatic brain injury, birth insults, and environmental toxins. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Jonine Nazar Beesman. Hey, Janine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thanks so much for having me. I think this is a interesting and maybe overdue conversation that we're going to have today because it has been a couple of years, maybe even four years since we really explored the assessment and evaluation process. And I think there are some things that have probably changed, or I know there are questions that have come up because of COVID that my listeners will be interested in as well. But I would love as a way to start, if you could just Tell us in your own words a little bit about the work that you do in the world. And I always love to know either your personal why for doing it or where you find the most joy in the work that you're doing. So I'm a pediatric and adolescent young adult neuropsychologist, which means that the training goes beyond just typical clinical psychology into a couple of years of postdoc understanding brain development neural circuitry, how things wire up. And the why I went into that specialty is just truly fascination about the brain and how it governs and operates everything and truly understanding things from a brain perspective, how behavior is shaped by what the brain is doing. So I think the favorite part of my day is just sitting with students, chatting with them, getting to know them, taking them in, really trying to capture and appreciate their individual differences, 
during testing with that's what I'm doing, really enjoying the process of discovery, working with kids almost as a detective to figure out the best things about their brains and how they work and how they learn and think and organize information. Probably the least favorite is all the documentation that follows (laughs) after that assessment process. But I've also always taken pride and felt it's really important in doing assessment to be a practitioner, to also be a clinician, to treat, to intervene, to understand what it takes to help a student arrive from point A to point B and construct interventions and strategies that work particularly for them. So I always carry my own therapy caseload. I'm out in the community. I'll do school observations, home observations, work to coach parents, bring in family systems and conduct family sessions. So when I am writing recommendations in my reports, they're really applicable to real life, not just sitting in a testing bubble and spewing out some numbers. And this is how your child compares based on the average, but really taking into account the whole child in the big picture. That is music to my ears. I think that is something that so many of us raising neurodivergent kids, certainly most, if not all listeners of this podcast, at some point are needing to find a good neuropsych to do this work with our child. And we want someone who really will take the time to get to know who our kid is and understand their unique profile. And I will just say, I have a pretty active Facebook group where this comes up all the time, you know, looking for recommendations. I'm trying to find someone to do this evaluation. So maybe that would be a good place to start because I really would love to get into the nuances of what you do as well. But when parents are looking for someone to do an assessment for their child, what should they even be thinking about? How do they go about vetting someone to assess and evaluate their child? Sometimes parents will be given from a school or a referring party, maybe, you know, three to four different names, maybe up to 10. Like I've had calls before where a parent may say, yes, the school just gave me, Bridges Academy just gave me two pages of people. How do I go through this? So I think there are some good important upfront questions that can be asked that I would ask as a parent. You know, I would want to know how do you approach assessment? I would want to know, how do you get the best out of my student in that time-limited framework within which you have to assess? What happens if my student's tired that day or you're not really getting the best of them? You know, how would you adjust accordingly? So I would ask those questions. I would ask subspecialty areas. I would ask levels of experience if a parent really is seeking a neuropsychological evaluation versus a psychological assessment or a psychoeducational assessment. And I know all of this lingo can get confusing. You do want to make sure that you truly are with a neuropsych, somebody who's had the postdoctoral training and understanding how a brain works and how they apply that to test interpretation. Because, you know, anyone can really administer a test. All you do is just, you know, read the administration rules and there you go. But it's the process by which somebody is going about problem solving or thinking about something or reacting to a question that really is most valuable in the sweet spot of evaluation where you really need to get in. 
So as a parent, I'd be curious about how all that works and how a student is supported through the process. I don't believe in just, you know, bringing a student in for, you know, an eight hour day and cramming all of these tests in front of them and saying, okay, you know, we got our results, we got our numbers, great, we're good to go, send me the next person, you know, so I can do my next set of testing. I like to break it up into sections, into digestible, you know, sound bites, depending on the age of the student and their tolerance levels, how much really makes sense to try to get a sense of their true capacity. So I do think those are some important questions to ask. You know, I would want to know, you know, what's their philosophy in, in understanding a student's individual profile? Lots of questions already. One, could you explain the difference between a neuropsych, a psychoeducational and a psychological assessment? I bet there are listeners who have been recommended one or all of them and may not understand how they're differentiated. So there are different degrees that people can get to give tests. You know, one degree might be a school psychologist. So when your student is getting assessed by a school psychologist, say a triennial review as part of, you know, federal law that requires testing be updated every three years, that school psychologist has a master's degree typically and is going to look at testing in a much more narrow lens. Somebody who's conducting a psychological assessment is often a licensed clinical psychologist, but they don't have training in neuropsych or brain development or neurochemistry or the structure of the brain or how to translate and interpret those results based on what's going on in the brain. So may just look at a result correlate it with one specific function and say, oh, well, this is a strength or this is a weakness without looking at a pattern of scores within the brain. And then psychoeducational testing might be limited just to looking at some IQ testing, looking at some academic achievement, but not uncovering more layers. In neuropsych, we're looking, for example, at memory and learning, at attention and executive functioning, at different kinds of motor skills visual motor integration, different aspects of sensory processing and sensory integration and social emotional variables, really getting a sense of personality traits that may be driving, you know, behaviors or, you know, just again, how all of the emotional information is being organized and interpreted by a student. So it's a much deeper dive in neuropsych. It's really making sure that no stones are left unturned and we're really answering referral questions as thoroughly as possible, understanding what a brain is doing and what a brain is not doing, and maybe what a specific brain needs to continue to develop and thrive. I love that you mentioned before, it's like being a detective, because that is definitely the experience that I observed when my child, Asher, who's now 17, was, I think, 13. And we did a couple of day neuropsych with someone who really specialized in twice exceptional kids. And I would joke, oh my gosh, I know more about my child's brain than any parent should ever know about their kid's brain. But it was so fascinating in the whole process to see how 
adaptive it was depending on what was going on. And so I'd love if you could maybe talk a little bit more about what your process might be like when you're working with a student, how you might pivot and how you might just react or respond to what you're learning as the process goes on. Absolutely. Especially with 2E kids, we want to make sure we are tapping into those competencies. And I'm a true believer that standardized testing is just not always the way for all students. So my process is taking some time initially just to make sure students are comfortable in the office, that they feel welcome, warm at home. It's about chatting and asking about their passions, their interests, their wishes, their goals, giving them a good framework for what to expect as we move forward, but letting them know that it's a flexible process. And if they need a break or they have a question, that it's interactive and it's collaborative in that way. It also requires a lot of attunement. So I really use just deep attunement in the assessment process, really trying to tap into where a student is at. Sometimes I can see it's just written all over their face that they're just baked. They're done. They just, they're not really answering in a way that honors what they truly know. So we're just done that day. It's just cut off that day. We come back another day, hit it maybe at a better time of the school day or the flow of their week and make sure that it is dialed in according to those needs. So we may have a structure and we may have certain sessions that are already mapped out and scheduled, but often those need to be adjusted. They need to be made shorter or, you know, we need to give more breaks within the test session. Sometimes we need to get off script completely. So I'm a big believer because when you're giving a standardized test, there's rules. So the rule may be after a student gets three of these incorrect, move on to the next test. Well, we never really stop there. Number one, I want to know why something was incorrect. I always test past limits. So even if a student has reached a standardized ceiling on something, I'll go beyond because often students will get items correct well past time limits or well past where you normally would have cut off. And I think that's really important information to glean and ascertain. So we'll make sure we're always testing limits and seeing true capacities. And sometimes we'll even go back and try something again, even though there are a lot of psychologists or testers who will complain, oh, I can't give this test again. There'll be practice effects, but it's actually practice effects that we want to get a little insight into. All right, if there has been some exposure and some opportunity for a student to practice with this item, what does it look like after that? Did it result in improvement? So we really take our time to unravel all of that and look at the various pathways, you know, from point A to point B. It sounds like it would be really fascinating work because every child is so different, right? Right. Absolutely. A kid may be having a meltdown and not wanting to test at all. Well, okay, you know, but then we're going to talk about what's going on. We may sit on the floor and play for a little bit. We may bring a parent in to help with some co-regulation. We may just honor what their sensory needs are in the moment. we may pull out some different kinds of, you know, fidgets or just try to offer some OT-like interventions in the process just to help regulate. And then, you know, we can try again. So sometimes our timing is not a student's timing and we need to adjust accordingly. We'll be right back after this quick break. 
This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm so glad you shared that because that is something also that comes up a lot within my community is when a child is being assessed if they had an off day or and a lot of times it is just a one day thing and then they get this label or diagnosis based on what they don't believe is really their child's true profile. For parents who are listening to this, if they have a child who they believe just had a really off day, like how would they navigate trying to get a better assessment in that case? I think what we talked about initially, just taking some care and vetting in the beginning, although, you know, no one has a crystal ball to see how it all comes out. But 
I do believe, and this sometimes happens, at least in the state of California, there's an IEE process where a family can get an independent educational evaluation if they disagree. You know, this is if a set of testing has been conducted at school and parents really feel like, God, this is completely off base. You missed my child completely. So I would in that case, since parents are 24-7, they know their students best. And we should all defer to parents because they truly are the experts. And listen, if a student hasn't been captured accurately, I think that's very important information for a parent to impart and advocate that there needs to be some degree of reassessment or reconsideration, even if it has been done at a high level. And there should be open lines of communication where a parent can feel not daunted by this, but just to be forthright and say, you know what, like maybe this part of my child sounds accurate, but this part does not, you know, so how did you get to, how did you arrive at this place? And, you know, it should be an open discussion because you, I wouldn't want anything necessarily in writing about my kid that didn't really capture the essence of them. That's such good advice. I think so many parents feel just overwhelmed generally, especially if they are raising a kid who isn't thriving in school and they may be going down this path and don't have the insight and information. And so we often just rely on the experts who are giving feedback and may not trust their judgment if they feel like this isn't a disconnect or may not feel like we have a voice to push back and ask for more. So I really appreciate that. Is getting a neuropsych something that really every neurodivergent kid would benefit from? I mean, it seems like having a really good understanding of how this human's brain works and where their strengths are and where their relative weaknesses are and what kind of support they need would be so beneficial. On a theoretical level, I would say yes, absolutely. And as a neuropsych, see the value in it. But on a practical level, you know, I try to talk parents through, especially if they don't have the time or the resources, because not everybody does, you know, have the benefit of being able to pursue this. Maybe even just consulting with a neuropsych. Sometimes I may just look at test results and offer that have already been done and offer a little bit further or deeper interpretation. Or I may be picking up a student for therapy who's already been assessed, but you know, I'll see just through behavioral observations something that may seem like it got missed. And so there'll be an open conversation about that. But it can be absolutely valuable, but I also understand that you know, we work with what we have. So we work with budgets, we work with resources, sometimes some information is better than no information. And I also base it on functioning, you know, it's not necessarily vital if a student's thriving, doing okay, happy at home, involved in some activities, has some friends, you know, not huge, you know, complaints at school. If your child is happy and thriving, then maybe it's not the most absolutely necessary. Of course, it would add a layer of deeper understanding and insight, but not absolutely necessary. So sometimes we just base it on what's going on with a student. And in some cases where things are a mystery and parents are struggling so much to understand what's driving the behavior, what's driving the responses or the reactivity or the discomfort or the anxiety, 
then it can be extremely helpful to educate parents because then they have those aha moments and understanding of their students, not seeing it as oppositional behavior. Just as an aside, I don't really even go to a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder ever because I just feel it's kind of a throwaway, useless kind of diagnosis. We understand if a student's being disruptive and oppositional, we can see that, you know, we don't need to to call it something, but we need to understand why. And so I think that's the time in which a neuropsych eval can be insightful. Yeah, I appreciate that. What about age-wise? Is there an ideal window for when a child would have this kind of comprehensive neuropsych? It always depends on what's going on. I mean, sometimes it is very wise to try to at least get some look with a professional as early as possible if it involves putting together an early intervention plan. Again, it really, you know, just depends. Sometimes it's very helpful to get in at a kindergarten level, per se, if a parent is very worried that information's not being retained. Letters, numbers, shapes, colors, no matter how many times it's gone over, it just doesn't seem to be sinking in. Maybe wiser to get in and see if there's a little something brewing in terms of learning differences rather than waiting till third or fourth grade, which often school districts will say, oh, well, don't worry, you know. But if you wait till third or fourth grade, you may have a much more severe, let's just say, dyslexia or dysgraphia that you're dealing with that could have been remediated, you know, through some good educational therapy or something like that. Or we may get a 12-month-old in or an 18-month-old in who's just showing signs of, you know, disengagement or poor joint attention. And we have an opportunity to put together a great early intervention plan, then that makes sense. And then I will say it can be helpful at major transitions. Sometimes if a parents are deciding on which middle school or which high school, or you want to make sure that your student's going to get fair and appropriate accommodations moving into college, those transition points can be good times at which to reassess or do an initial assessment. I'm actually interviewing someone later today about the transition to college and how to kind of navigate that. So that's interesting. I'm just curious, do you have a favorite age group or profile? (laughs) Yeah, where's your sweet spot? I know. I'm like a kid in a candy store. You know, I really do kind of cross the range. I learn a lot from my teenagers. (laughs) They teach me a lot of lingo and a lot of new things going on. So they're always fun to be with and fun to have conversations with. I also enjoy very little kids and playing. I do have a floor time background. So I'll often employ just floor time techniques and strategies and playing with children. I'm a sucker for babies. So (laughs) anytime we have little itty bitties come into the office, I'm always so happy. But no, I'd say I enjoy kids in general. I just love kids. And I do find work with students to be very rewarding in the sense that I feel there's still so much time to make an impact and to alter and affect brain development, because we know experiences do change the way in which a brain organizes and adapts and functions. So to be able to be part of that process is really rewarding. But yeah, I can't say I have a favorite pick. That would be like asking me, you know, which is your favorite kid? <laughs> I, I can't. I just, you know, you, you love all age ranges for different reasons. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> 
So you mentioned helping the kids, and I'm just wondering, what is your approach to providing feedback to students? Obviously, you know, it's the parent who comes to you and wants this information, and you're writing these detailed reports, which may be for schools and other people to check out. But how do you actually then work with kids? And do you work with kids of all ages to help them understand their unique profile? I'm glad you brought feedback up because I think feedback, of course, is the most important part of the process. We'll initially do feedback with parents. We'll give feedback often across more than one session because it's a lot to take in in one sitting. So we'll try to make ourselves available and offer developmental surveillance and just become part of the team. We conduct feedback with kids very often, but sometimes it depends on the child and what the parents want. We won't, you know, do feedback with a two-year-old or a three-year-old, but we may, you know, with an as early as elementary school. And when we do what we call student-friendly feedback sessions, they're very different from our parent feedback sessions. We're really trying to focus on their strengths, all the good things about them, help them, you know, just get jazzed and excited about what they did, make sure we answer their questions. And sometimes we'll meet with students just because, again, depending on the student, it's helpful for parents to have an outside person create a little bit of buy-in and motivation and explanation around some of the suggestions that may be offered through an evaluation. So, you know, we take time to explain it to the students, but really it's about just telling them the best things about themselves and thanking them for everything they shared with us and creating a little story of themselves. Sometimes we'll ask parents or students, do you want us to write a little story about you? That's like the story of yourself. And, you know, that can be another lovely way to give feedback to kids. I love that. I mean, I think it's so important and it's such a gift to get to know yourself on that level. As an adult, it's easy for me to say, oh, what a cool thing. You really can learn so much about yourself. And also as an adult who's worked with so many adults who have discovered their neurodivergence in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, who would have loved that information earlier. I also imagine there are some young people who don't want to hear what you have to say or who aren't maybe as open to embracing their neurodivergence. I'm just wondering how you navigate that or what your approach is. It's very true. It's a slippery slope and something that we have to navigate gingerly, again, depending on the student. Some parents have their kids come in for feedback and the kid really, the student doesn't really care, you know, or they're not really invested or understanding of the value at that point in their development. We have based on parents requests before, for example, and this doesn't happen often, but let's just say with an autism spectrum diagnosis, or even if it's very high functioning, and we're highlighting the assets of that and the gifts that come along with that. We've had some students who have taken issue with that and become offended and really don't, you know, want that information about themselves. And then we have to adjust again, and we have to explain that this isn't something that defines them and not a label, but maybe just a little information about them to understand how they think and where their gifts are stemming from. But then for other students, it's quite a relief. You know, we have a lot of students who come in and they're very grateful and, you know, very pleased to receive the information. So it really just depends on what's happening in the moment. And when we see students kind of upset, you know, by information, we'll have to back off 
and talk them through that and just work through the feelings of it and guide them and make sure that they're okay. And then in those cases, we will follow up. We will make sure that they're, you know, okay. And some days, sometimes a few days later or a couple weeks later, we'll get reports from parents. Yeah, you know, they're fine. It was a little, you know, much in the beginning, but now they're starting to think about it a little bit more and it makes more sense or they're asking more questions. So, you know, we'll just navigate it accordingly. Thank you for that. We'll be right back after this quick break. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the no guilt mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. My mind has now gone to COVID. This is a, another thing that has come up a lot is so many assessments have happened virtually. And so I'd love to know what your experience has been on the efficacy of a virtual assessment and evaluation. And then anything else that you've observed in the way that COVID has shown up in the work that you do and your interaction with kids. COVID has been very interesting, you know, in our office, Initially, you know, when things first unfolded in 2020, we tried to not cancel too much and do what we could do of assessments virtually, but found or I found even with verbally based items or things that we might just be able to administer through conversation, it definitely wasn't ideal. Efficacy wise, you know, when you're trying to really observe something closely, And I don't know how people were doing it when it came to like manipulating things or having to, let's just say, put a hole in a peg or manipulate a block or have a clear, you know, picture of something that they were going to see. I would imagine some of those assessments that they were trying to do all of that virtually or on an iPad were probably not the best. 
So we've just moved things back to the office as soon as we could and took precautions and just honored people's comfort levels and, you know, tried to do as much as we could to adjust. But I think with certain aspects of assessment, just face to face is something that's irreplaceable. So even just with masks and reading facial expressions and understanding social perspective taking and reading of facial cues, you know, those I think are important things. So unfortunately, I just don't think it's a process that's conducted with a high degree of efficacy via, you know, Zoom or some other formats, although people do it. And I've been on listservs reading how people are doing it. But for us, we preferred the face-to-face. Other implications of COVID were just much higher rates of depression and anxiety that we were seeing in kids. A lot of parents coming in and noticing attentional challenges because they were now able to see for the first time, not able to attune to a screen and fidgeting and getting up and avoiding and whatever else. And they're like, oh my gosh, like my child can't focus. What's going on? Or, you know, questions about, well, is this a true learning difference? Or was this just a lost year of learning? You know, how do I decipher the two? So it's been interesting and we're starting or there's starting to be studies just on the neurological impact of long COVID or people who got hit in a certain way. So just trying to understand those variables and different strains of COVID. So we're starting to try to work into our intake more about COVID and the impact and whether, you know, somebody contracted it and work that into the interpretation of results. And if a child is depressed or struggling with anxiety or their mental health has really been impacted, as you mentioned, you saw much higher rates during COVID. Does that also affect the neuropsych process? And how does that kind of play out in other areas? It absolutely can. I mean, for any of us, it might affect our processing speed. It might affect our concentration. It might affect our stamina, our motivation, our energy levels. So we always just take that into account and think about priorities. You know, it always, always priorities are mental health, well-being, you know, happiness, just generally, you know, being able to take care of oneself. So if any of those pieces are too far out of balance, you know, we may say, let's treat this first, you know, we're not even at a baseline for, you know, this student, you know, let's have a stepwise approach. Sometimes we might, you know, defer a more full evaluation if it's very clear that there are other variables that are interfering. Okay, thank you. We've covered a lot of ground. I've got a sheet of questions and you've touched upon so many in your responses, which is wonderful. And I would love to, before we wrap up, talk a little bit about the results. I know I received like a 45 page document and was a good nighttime reading material, very in depth and included recommendations. It was very thorough. And so I'm just wondering, how do you recommend parents who are receiving this detailed feedback from a neuropsych evaluation? What should they do with it? What's the best use of that? How should they engage with it? And yeah, just general advice that you have. 
It is a little bit of your Bible moving forward. It is a little bit of your roadmap. Like your evaluation, we too will make that a robust section of the report with the intent of helping to carry parents over and students over for the next few years. So we advise parents to use the recommendation section really as a resource library and as a reminder of options that they may have for their student, you know, maybe things they might do over summer or things that they might consider at different times and help make it a little bit of a decision tree. You know, we'll break it down into sections of academic versus therapeutic. We'll add in things for home. We'll add in ideas for community, whether it's volunteering or a really interesting philanthropic cause or trip or just different activities that may be really valuable that a student may want to get involved in and will be very specific, you know, with goals that might be addressed in particular interventions. But we remind parents that as much as we can, because it is overwhelming, you're not to go out and do all of this stuff at once. This is not expected. You know, this really is just your set of resources of ideas and options of things that are available. But what we do try to do is say, if there was one thing I would pick to do right now, or the two top things I would pick to do right now, you know, do this, you know, focus on this for the next six to 12 months, you know, let's meet back, let's see how things are going. And then we have all of these other like menu of options truly from which to choose depending on you know how things are unfolding or developing but we will try to streamline it and do a short list because it is very overwhelming the list of you know maybe 15 you know 20 different things that may be cool opportunities but of course there's only so much time in the day so we'll try to help prioritize As you were talking, listeners couldn't see, but I just went across my forehead because, yeah, you know, it's been four years and I'm realizing, well, there's so many things that we just didn't even do. I'm going to go back and read that roadmap and just kind of refresh my memory because it is such a good resource if you're able to get that kind of detailed recommendations that are really unique to who your child is. Are schools interested in this kind of feedback or how do schools engage with this detailed report if they do at all? We will often send a shortened school version that's less to read for a school district and really focused only on the academic portion of things and perhaps services or placements we may be recommending. And we'll sometimes, you know, present the results to an IEP team and just try to highlight the main points. But often, you know, parents will not want to share certain aspects of a neuropsych eval with a school district. And we're very flexible about that. We'll edit accordingly. It's They hold the privilege to that information, so we're happy to take out whatever they're not comfortable sharing with the school district. But we will really will try to shorten it and just get to the point of what's relevant to school. I mean, for our parents, we may include lists of, you know, books and websites. You know, often, Debbie, will have, you know, your information or your resources that you offer and the amazing, you know, I call cast of characters that you've had, you know, over the years, or you have the privilege to work with, you know, we'll make those recommendations. We may 
create a very short list of things like that that may be helpful for teachers, but it's edited so that it's, you know, not as overwhelming perhaps because it probably won't get read. And depending on the IEP team, sometimes the IEP team is so grateful for the outside information and sometimes they're very defensive about it. And, you know, they're basically like, okay, okay, well, okay, but, you know, here's what our evaluation says. And so based on our evaluation, even though we're supposed to be considering outside information, our evaluation says this, and they're more rigid. Wow, fascinating. This has been so interesting. And again, we've covered so much. I so appreciate everything that you shared and just the work that you do. And I think kids who get to work with you and families who get to learn from you are very lucky. I'd love to know two things before we say goodbye. One, I believe you're in Southern California. If parents want to connect with you, how can they do that? And secondly, if there's one word of advice or something you'd like parents to leave this conversation, if this has sparked them, something you'd want them to know about this process. I'll start with the second question (laughs) because I think that's really important. And if there's one tidbit of information I could encourage with parents It's just to really don't shy away from that communication piece with a person who you're bringing your child to see, whether it's a therapist or your assessor, have that open communication. If you're not happy with something or you have a question about something, don't feel like you have to defer to the professional. Be honest and be open to having the process be collaborative so that you can be the good self-advocate for your child that you are and were meant to be. And then in reaching us, just our website, but I'm, you know, we can bypass that since I feel very uncomfortable (laughs) with anything that's self-serving, but thank you for asking. (laughs) Okay. Well, listeners, I will have links on the show notes page. So if you want to connect with Janine and her resources and learn more about her work, you can do that by going to the show notes page. I really appreciate what you're doing. And I so appreciate you sharing everything that you shared with us today. So thank you so much for coming by the show. It was such a pleasure, Debbie. Take care. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more, or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. 
And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.